Today's episode focuses on leadership during crisis. We're going to be tackling questions like, how do you acknowledge your fears and anxieties without letting them weigh you down? And how do you inspire confidence in your team when you don't know yourself what the future holds? We'll also get into some deeper conversations about planning your operations for the future. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. Despite being quarantined, I'm feeling extremely grateful today. And I wanted to show love to some of our loyal listeners who have shouted us out on social media over the past couple weeks. Thanks to Lauren at Orlando City, Scott at Texas A&M, Jim at the LA Chargers, and Rachel at Virginia Tech. Now, if you're joining us for the first time on Flip the Switch, welcome. This is a show dedicated to finding best practices in customer experience and employee experience and applying it to the world of sports, entertainment, and live events. Today, we're going to dive into a topic that is the foundation of both good CX and EX, leadership that values both of those things. Ultimately, whenever you're working on a customer or employee experience transformation, it's going to fall apart if your senior leadership isn't on board. Leadership is especially important at a time like this. To successfully navigate this crisis, leadership skills are some of the most important tools to have in your toolbox, whether you run an entire organization or you just oversee a couple people in one department. You can be the smartest guy or girl in the room, but if you can't motivate a group of people to rally behind your vision or your idea, you're not going to survive the hardships and fallout COVID-19 has brought and will continue to bring. I knew we had to do an episode on leading through crisis, and who better to learn from than Doug Thornton? So who is Doug? Doug is the EVP of ASM Global, overseeing all arena, stadia, and theaters worldwide, directing the operations and financial performance of this division. Now, if you're unfamiliar with ASM Global, they're the result of the merger between SMG and AEG facilities, meaning that they oversee over 300-plus facilities around the world, including the new Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, Barclays Center in Brooklyn, and McCormick Place in Chicago. The facilities in Doug's division have over 2.7 million seats, hosting up to 160 million guests annually. That's great and all, but how does that equip Doug to talk about leading through a crisis? Well, I found a great clip from an article in the Times-Picayune newspaper in New Orleans that describes it. He's the guy who oversaw the more than $336 million in renovations at the Superdome after Hurricane Katrina. He's the guy who served as the state's lead negotiator in lease talks with the Saints that led to the current long-term deal. He's the guy who first mentioned creating Champion Square, the entertainment district outside of the Dome. He's the guy who began clandestine talks with the Hornets back in 1999 that eventually led to the NBA franchise relocating from Charlotte to New Orleans in 2002. Now, If all of that's not enough, during his watch, the Superdome has hosted multiple Super Bowls, Final Fours, WrestleMania, BCS and college football playoff championships, NBA and WNBA All-Star Games, the Republican National Convention, and more. Safe to say, this is not the first crisis Doug has led through. And while this pandemic is unlike anything we've seen, 
there are lessons from Doug's past experiences that you can apply to the challenges you're facing today. So without further ado, let's jump into this story-filled episode with Doug Thornton. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. Um, so as we were talking before the session, um, we really said there have been three kind of different moments in your career that have prepared you for what we're facing now with this coronavirus pandemic. Um, and maybe the best place to start is with the first one, which was 9-11. Uh, when we talked about the similarities of how it impacted your business, uh, they're pretty similar. So could you tell us a little bit about how 9-11 sort of prepared you um, for what we're facing now? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, it was very sudden, you know, unexpected, uh, great human tragedy. Uh, everybody saw it play out on the world stage. So the similarities there were uh, very stark and, and uh, uh, dramatic. Um, I think uh, the, uh, the difference between this pandemic and 9-11 uh, is that um, 9-11, you know, we had a situation where people for a period of time were afraid to get on airplanes or go to mass gatherings or go to conventions or even large sporting events. And, uh, you know, we see, we see that same situation here. Uh, but over time, uh, you gradually, you know, gain confidence and we're able to, you know, jump back on an airplane and fly. It greatly impacted the, uh, the tourism and hospitality industry, particularly in New Orleans where I live. Uh, we were deeply impacted here. I remember a dramatic fall off in the, uh, the hotel occupancy rates. Uh, but for me personally, um, uh, it, was, uh, it was deeply impactful because we had uh, Super Bowl upcoming uh, in that January of the following year. In 2002? Yes. Wow. So um, we had to quickly pivot. Uh, and work closely with the NFL on redefining the way the Super Bowl would be played in New Orleans. And I recall um, in that first couple of weeks after 9-11, having conversations with Jim Stieg, who was the uh, vice president of special events, the guy who basically organizes uh, Super Bowl for the NFL, uh, where uh, we were very concerned about playing a football game in a dome stadium. So we had to um, take measures to ensure the safety, mitigate risk of any impactful occurrences. Um, I recall that um, Commissioner Tagliabue actually flew to New Orleans in October uh, of 2001, right after 9-11, to meet with us. And we actually walked him through the Superdome to show him things like air intake uh, 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 you know, uh, the the uh, air handling units uh, that suck air in from the outside and how we were going to protect those from any type of biohazard. Uh, so uh, we had to uh, devise certain safety standards uh, along the way and prepare um, uh, not only for uh, the ChemBio uh, risk, but also for the terrorism risk, obviously, that was the very first game that was played under the National Safety Act, uh, mm. where we had we actually closed uh, Poydras Street for a week and put up hard barricades and a fence around the Superdome and used magnetometers for the first time. Um, it totally changed the way that uh, 
people now attend sporting events. If you think about it, those are common practices every year for a Super Bowl. But the post-9-11 Super Bowl was a very dramatic shift in the way that the industry um, actually does business. And it was the first uh, move in that direction. But um, this particular pandemic is a little bit different because uh, you don't have a visible enemy. Uh, you have an invisible <laughs> virus, and uh, no one really understands how to uh, defend against it yet. And, uh, and it's worldwide. Um, you know, the tragedy of 9-11 occurred here in the U.S., but impacted, obviously, uh, tourism across the, the country and across the globe. Well, it's, I mean, a couple things to unpack there. I mean, one is I think about the future. I do think a lot of people will be fearful of some other type of virus as a security perspective from from a security perspective going forward. Um, so let's say we get a vaccine, everything's cured. Um, I do think people will somewhat be fearful of something like this happening again. So I, 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 how do you how do you think about the future and consumers' fears in this? Because you guys, t- you talked about it from an operations perspective, how you adjusted, but how did you adjust to, I guess, consumers' fears? Well, that's a very good question. I think we're trying to figure out right now the consumer behavior and what the customer journey might look like when we do return um, to hosting events. Uh, and post 9-11, uh, we, we adjusted um, by making sure there was communication you know, in advance of someone coming to the event, what could you expect in terms of bag checks, magnetometers? And we found that people uh, wanted that level of security. In fact, if you didn't have that level of security, then they were a little bit concerned about coming to the event. So the more we could communicate uh, the safety standards, security standards, some of the measures we were putting in place, the better they felt. Um, We also uh, worked closely with our local law enforcement officials, our federal uh, officials, the FBI, uh, to understand threat levels. Uh, and of course, that's not something you communicate uh, to the public. But uh, from an internal perspective, it gave us confidence and gave us the ability to adapt where we needed to to build up uh, the security measures. But in terms of restoring the consumer confidence, I think it's a matter of um, putting those safety measures in place and having someone come back to an event for the first time. And once they step through the door and they see that you've got uh, the magnetometers in place, they see that you're doing bag checks, they see that you you have a clear bag policy, or they see that you've got a fence up around the perimeter, uh, or that you've got uh, visible police protection or um, could even be armed guards, uh, you know, outside the building at uh, certain events. But when they see that, they feel comfortable. And the first time they walk through those doors, uh, the fears are... Um, mitigated and relieved. And that means there's a higher probability they're going to come back to the next event because nothing happened to them at the event they just attended. So I'm hopeful that we can come up with similar standards. I don't know what they are yet, whether it's thermal imaging, whether it's allowing people to wear masks, whether it's hand sanitizers throughout the concourse, it's probably any and all of those. Uh, But when people see those things, and feel that they're going to be safe coming into a building or a mass gathering or a concert, um, and they come to that event and, it, and nothing happens to them, then they'll come back. That's the key, I think, is being able to put the standards in place, which is what we did after 9-11. And you were 
you were able to maintain those standards. Now it's commonplace. You don't go to any event without going through a magnetometer, just like you do when you go through an airport. It changed the way um, we travel. It changed the way we attend events. People are accustomed to it. They expect it. And I think there's going to be some level of that going forward. I just don't know what degree it's going to be. I completely agreed. And I, I think it's important, too, for, for anyone listening, to, as we think about some of these things, to get it set game one. My personal take on this is that because we're all so stuck inside and we've had that freedom restriction, that once sports are an entertainment and these large live events are allowed to occur again, I think right out the gates, there's going to be a lot of excitement. People are willing and ready to go back to it. But if they go to that first game, that first event, and they don't see the hand sanitizers there, they don't see people wiping things down, they don't, whatever the other standards are that we're going to need, if they don't see that, I don't know that they're going to continue coming to games as, as much as uh, they, they maybe would have in the past. I don't know. We have, to inspire, we have to inspire confidence in the public and their ability to come to events safely. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and we're working on uh, creating those standards now uh, internally within our company. Um, we've had operational best practices for years in terms of cleaning and safety and security, but mm. I think we're going to have to adapt to new measures. It will be costly, and I predict that the consumer will ultimately wind up paying for that as they normally do. It gets passed on right. through the ticket price. <laughs> or user fees or whatever the case may be, uh, because there's a cost to providing that level of safety and security. But again, what we found is that the consumers don't mind that if it's an extra two or three dollars on the ticket, or if there's some extra expense that we may have to, um, to cover in some kind of way, as long as the public is safe. Uh, that's what they care about. Yeah. And an extra two, two or three dollars for peace of mind and Safety is, I'm, I'm willing to pay that every day. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the next incident or the next, I guess, period of time that really helped prepare you for what we're facing now, which is probably your most well-known, uh, your well-known venture into this time of crisis, which would be uh, Hurricane Katrina and how it impacted New Orleans, the Superdome in your world. Well, Katrina, uh, there were a lot of similarities between um, Hurricane Katrina and what's going on right now. Uh, the biggest one for me is the fact that the, uh, the industry shut down in the Gulf South, particularly here in New Orleans. I mean, we were you know, literally uh, devastated, so our buildings could not function. So we were uh, knocked out of service for, in our case, uh, a year here at uh, uh, the Superdome in New Orleans, and in some cases, many buildings along the Gulf South, anywhere from six to eight months or longer. But what's different in this particular situation with the pandemic, again, is it's worldwide. It's a worldwide shutdown, not just a small geographic area. Uh, but with Katrina, um, you know, we uh, at least uh, had the ability to uh, work with our local leaders, our federal leaders, uh, to cobble together enough funding and put together uh, a program to restore our facility. Uh, you know, we were joking the other day about the difference between Katrina and this pandemic. Uh, for those of us who live along the, uh, the, the, the Gulf Coast here, um, during Katrina, we couldn't go to a grocery store. At least you can go to a grocery store during the pandemic. Right. You might have to wear a mask, but at least you can buy groceries. We couldn't go to a grocery store. We didn't have mail service. We didn't have 
uh, gasoline. We had to go out of the parish or out of the city you had to drive. In fact, there was hardly any people living here at the time, people living in the, you know, outside the region. Uh, but uh, so it was a little bit different. The conditions were a little bit different. But what was similar is the business shut down. I mean, we completely shut down. We had no revenue coming in and we had nothing but expenses uh, to cover. And of course, an uncertain future uh, with a major facility like the Superdome that means so much to the economy here in New Orleans. Tell us. So, so I've actually never heard you tell this story. Um, I guess give us a somewhat abbreviated story, but feel, I mean, feel free to go in whatever places you want to with it, but give us the Hurricane Katrina story as soon as, I guess, from the time that people started pouring in, right? Because the Superdome during the time of Hurricane Katrina was kind of like a refuge of last resort, right? Um, and then 14,000 people, I think it was, came in at the beginning, but it just got crazier from there. So I guess give us a little bit of behind the scenes of the five, 10 days where Hurricane Katrina was actually happening. Yeah, well, the uh, the building was pressed into service, as you just said, as a refuge of last resort. The hurricane um, was um, a Cat 5, which is, by our standards, the highest category uh, that you can that you can have, with winds that were approaching 200 miles an hour just off the, uh, the coast of Louisiana. So uh, the city and state officials made the decision to open the Superdome as a refuge of last resort. And what that means is, um, it's a place where people can seek refuge when they cannot get out of town. It was a mandatory evacuation of New Orleans. We evacuated over a million people in the span of probably 36 hours, but there are certain people that could not get out. Probably 100,000 of those million four that live in our, million two that live in our area, uh, there were probably 100 to 200,000 people that were um, uh, left in their homes or left in nursing homes or uh, their caregivers had left them and they, they just were stranded. So no one ever expected uh, the Superdome to be a refuge of last resort for close to a week. We thought this would be uh, a storm that would blow in. There would be some minor street flooding, some wind damage, and two days later, people would be transferred out of the Superdome. It turned out that, um, as you said, we had 14,000 uh, on the day that we opened. And that number grew to over 30,000 within 36 hours. And um, those people were here for the span of five days. And uh, it was a very, very difficult situation. You know, we, we, uh, we often joke that we're, uh, we're not a hospital, we're not a hotel, we're not equipped to handle people for five days, we're equipped to handle people for four hours. You know, for four hours. The Superdome is the fifth largest city in Louisiana with 70,000 people here for a Saints game. But we also have 3,000 workers with fully functioning concession stands and the ability to remove trash and uh, fully operational systems and water pressure, HVAC. Uh, so it's, it's a different situation when you've got 30,000 people here with 18 essential employees and about 375 National Guard and you're trying to feed people with meals ready to eat with no functioning uh, power systems, no water pressure uh, for five days. Very, so you guys, very you guys didn't really have power in the building? Is that? No power. We had, well, we had generated power. Okay. Um, so there's a story behind that. Uh, the generator sits about, um, about 24 inches off of the, uh, the central plant floor, which is elevated about two and a half feet above street level. And on day two, when the levees breached, 
Uh, we have massive water intrusion into the city. You saw the pictures. Uh, there was anywhere from four to six feet of water in downtown New Orleans, and there was about four feet of water at our loading dock um, and, and the central plant uh, where our generator is housed. So the generator came very close to flooding on day two. We were able to, to build a temporary dam with sandbags around the generator, which we were able to obtain from the Orleans Parish Levee Board via helicopter. Uh, and we were able to bail the water out and keep a differential between the generator and um, you know the water intrusion in the central plant itself. But we did have generated power. Now let's talk about what, what generator power means. That's enough light to allow you to evacuate a building like this, uh, not to maintain it four or five days. So the HVAC systems aren't gonna work. Uh, none of your water pressure is gonna work. When you think about uh, a building like the Superdome, the water pressure comes in at grade level. You've gotta pump the water up to the restrooms that are uh, above you. Uh, so without that water pressure, you have no functioning toilets. Uh, so imagine that for five days. With so 35,000 people. The conditions were absolutely inhumane. And uh, despite our efforts to try to get people out of here, uh, FEMA and our federal officials were trying their best, and there was really no way uh, to move those people out. It wasn't until the fifth day uh, that uh, buses were dispatched to... Um, just outside the Hyatt Regency, for those who know New Orleans, the Hyatt Regency is about two blocks from the Superdome. Uh, so they were able to get about 450 buses uh, into downtown New Orleans uh, that drove through nearly two feet of standing water. <laughs> um, and folks were evacuated through the New Orleans Center and into the Hyatt and loaded onto the buses. And they disembarked from here and were sent to all places around the country, Houston, Memphis, Atlanta, uh, uh, for, uh, you know, safe places of refuge. And it took two days to evacuate the building entirely because we had so many people here. So if I was, I mean, if I was you in that situation, right, my fear and anxieties would have been, and doubts would have been overwhelming. And, and I think for a lot of leaders right now, there's probably some fear and anxiety and doubts about what the future holds that, with right now in this in this coronavirus pandemic. So how did you overcome those fears, anxieties, doubts? What kind of self-talk did you have, mental models that kind of allowed you to put one foot in front of the other and keep going? Well, that's an interesting question. At the time, um, I don't know that I was, I don't know that anyone was fully prepared to deal with that situation. And what I've learned through each one of these situations you're talking about, 9-11 and Katrina, is there really is no blueprint. That's what we're seeing here with coronavirus. There's no blueprint. There's no how-to manual. You don't know what to expect the next day. Um, I found that, um, uh, you know, trusting your instincts uh, are always good. Uh, you have to be capable of making decisions without pausing, but you want to make those decisions based on empirical fact-based information, if you can, and not just an anecdotal evidence. Um, I, I also... Um, learned in Katrina um, to always be a little bit skeptical about the information you get and, uh, you know, don't always react immediately, you know, to what you might hear. I'll give you a specific instance 
of what I'm talking about, which is a pretty interesting story. I, I mentioned the generator and the fact that it only sits a couple of feet above grade level. So on day two, the floodwaters rose. We were able to dam the generator, and the generator's running okay, but you know, we had figured out a way to refuel the, uh, the tank through a temporary hose that was hooked to a 5,000-gallon uh, uh, tanker truck that we backed up into the loading dock. So we were safe for the time being, but we were fearful that if the water rose another 10 or 12 inches, it would overtake our generator and we'd be pitched into total darkness with 30,000 people here and it would just be chaos. So about 7 p.m. on day two, uh, the chief of police came in to see me. And this was after the mayor and the chief of police had been here earlier in the afternoon on Tuesday, day two. They had just done a helicopter tour of the city. The mayor had said to me, uh, we're not going to be able to stop the uh, the levee breaches, the water is continuing to pour in. Uh, it looks like it's going to be another six or seven days before we can um, stop that, uh, that water intrusion. So you're going to have to be here for another six or seven days. I said, Mr. Mayor, there's no way. This place will implode. You're going to have to get these people out. Uh, he says, well, tell me what you need and we'll get it from FEMA. So we made a long list of things we never got a lot of those provisions, by the way. Uh, but later that afternoon or that evening, about four hours later, the chief of police comes running into our conference room where we were huddled up in partial darkness. There was enough natural light coming in from, the, uh, from our reception area where we were huddled there with the National Guard, our little meeting place. And he says, I've got to talk to you. We're going to have eight more feet of water. We're being told there's going to be more levee breaches tonight. You need to get your families out of here. I've seen the generator, and I know that if we get another foot or two of water, it's going to overtake the generator. And I'm here to tell you to get your families out. It won't be safe to stay here. If this place goes dark, it's going to be tragic. He got up, he hugged me, and he said, I don't want to see you guys get hurt. And he left. So I'm sitting here in a room with four or five of my uh, leadership team and uh, some of the National Guard leadership, and we're all looking at each other going, what do we do? So we had a chat about that. And I said, you know, my instincts as a building manager is that we should evacuate. We should get the people out now while it's still daylight. We've got about an hour and a half. We can calmly move everybody out to the parking decks and we can set up their bedding in, the, in between the parking deck so they're shielded from the hot sun during the day, but at least they will not be trapped in here in darkness if the generator goes out. So Lieutenant Colonel Doug Mouton, who had just returned from two tours of duty in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, an incredible leader says to us, wait a minute, the chief told us the water's gonna rise, but we don't know the water's gonna rise. He said, let's mark that wall down there in the central plant. You've got your engineers down there 24-7. I'm going to put two of my National Guardmen down there with them. If that, that water's got to go 18 inches to overtake the generator, we'll mark it every single 30 minutes. And if it goes more than five inches in a half hour, then we'll go to plan B. Hmm. He said, we do not want to evacuate the building right now and have people disperse, we will not be able to 
maintain order. It turns out that Doug Mouton was right and the chief was wrong. We marked that water. We marked the, we had, we had took a magic marker and we marked the wall to indicate the level at which the water would have to rise to overtake the generator. The water rose two inches over the next three days and stopped. And we never had to evacuate. So we never lost power from the generator, which was a godsend. It was the one thing that I think saved lives here. But I look back on that moment and I'm thinking to myself, if they had listened to me, we would have had people <laughs> scattered under the parking lots. Who knows what would have happened? So that's what I mean by acting with your instincts. Hmm. And sometimes, you know, you, you, you take information, you process it, you listen to people who are experts. Doug Mouton had led troops uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. He was a well-seasoned veteran. And you listen to those guys and make decisions. Well, we made that decision, and it turned out to be the right decision. There were many, many other circumstances I could share with you, <laughs> but that's one that comes to mind when you, know, when you, you, you listen to uh, experts. You, we were getting opinions you know, at that very moment. I mean, within 30 minutes after the chief you know, leaving the office, uh, leaving that room, we were discussing the merits of evacuation. We were discussing the merits of repositioning our assets. So all of that information was being processed, and we made a collective decision to go with that plan to mark the wall. So uh, incredible. No, no blueprint for that. No how-to manual as a building manager, <laughs> you know, to uh, to determine you know what to do in that case. But it worked out. It it seems like too, in, in addition to you know, listening to the close group of people that you have, uh, looking at the data, applying your instincts to that data and, you know, from you guys marking the walls. Um, it feels like in addition to that, from some of the things that I've read is that in a moment of crisis like this, leading with humanity becomes really important. Um, one of the, one of the things that I saw a, a quote from you was talking about the lady who was near elevator two. And all this, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if you remember her um, or I saying did. things about her, um, but, but it felt like you really led with your humanity here. Um, so, so I guess tell us a little bit about the role that you feel like that played and just being a real person and not some executive up in a boardroom making decisions. How did that impact your well, ability? Well, that was the. the I mean, we were we were here to save lives. Again, we were thrust into this. We were, uh, we're building managers. You know, we're event managers. We're not. Um, we're not here to deal with disaster recovery, but we were thrust into that. And uh, the particular incident you're talking about was um, uh, this lady that uh, I would see every day when I would walk through the concourse. Um, she was probably in her early 60s, I'm guessing. Uh, she was by herself. And um, you have to understand, we had thousands of families in here. And everybody kind of staked out their own little piece of the earth you know, with their quilt and their belongings. And I would see her every day when I would walk by uh, on the concourse and she was in an elevator vestibule with her back to the corner in a sort of a defensive posture, but I would always see her playing with the kids and she was always happy and joyful. And then one day I walked by like day four and she wasn't there. And I've often wondered what happened to her? Where did she go? What happened? You know, did she make it? Did she, was she alive? Uh, how did she get out? Uh, what is she doing today? So um, I remember people coming up to me during that situation and 
just begging for help. Uh, our families need food. Uh, when are we going to be able to get out of here? What's going on with my home? I've got to be able to go back and check on my loved ones. So there is absolutely a human element to this. And we tried our best every day uh, to accommodate everyone in here. Um, we had a chaplain that was part of the uh, National Guard uh, team that was with us. Uh, uh, his name was uh, Father Austin. And Father Austin was the person who would go out each day among the evacuees and talk to them and get feedback. And it was very important that we communicate with the folks that were in here and try to address their needs. Uh, we actually put many of them to work as volunteers, you know, with mops and brooms and trash bags to try to keep the place clean. And they were so willing to help. And it was so inspirational to see that. But as more and more evacuees were brought here, day two, day three, day four, and day five, it became more difficult and challenging to manage the mood of the population. So, uh, but it was very important for us to recognize the human tragedy. And I think that's, that's one of the things that we're seeing right now. Um, first and foremost for us as uh, a company is the well-being of our employees. You know, the people that work for us, we wanna make sure that they're safe uh, they're following the protocols of the CDC and social distancing, and we want to make sure that when they come back to work, they're going to be working in a safe environment. Uh, so, and the same thing for the general public. We want to make sure that the general public is coming back to a safe environment. So we have to recognize the, the human side of this, as you said. It's not just making decisions, you know, for the bottom line or making decisions uh, for what's best for the company. It's, it's making decisions on a human level. I want to want to switch gears a little bit, and still we can still kind of use, I guess, uh, Katrina as a as a backdrop for this, but but maybe more so the the recovery period after Katrina. Um, I, I've had some some calls and some group conversations with different uh, leaders in sports and entertainment uh, industry over the last couple of weeks, and you know one of the things I think that comes up, especially at more like your director level or your mid manager level, is. I'm having trouble staying motivated. And to me, that's a sign that their leaders have not done a good enough job framing the stakes of what's at play here um, or, or checking in, right? But I think bigger more and more so, framing the stakes becomes really important in a crisis. Um, as you guys were rebuilding, uh, Tom Benson was thinking about moving the team. There was some conversation with that, right? Um, how did you frame the stakes, I guess, with your team to really motivate action and allow for that incredible 2006 Steve Gleason moment that, that happened. Um, I mean, what, what were, what were some of the things that you used as a leader to get your team motivated to, to quickly build, uh, and get everything done that you guys had to do? Well, the first thing is I would tell you that we all wanted to recapture what we had lost. And I think that was the single most motivating factor here. Um, and what I mean by that is our way of life uh, and the building that we work in every day. Um, so you attached it to something bigger, more emotional. Absolutely. The cause of what we were fighting for was bigger than us as individuals. Hmm. I have to tell you that within a month after Katrina, once I learned that the Superdome could be rebuilt, and that's a underscore could, because <laughs> there were doubts. I had doubts when I left here. I didn't think there would be any way, to be honest with you. But within within a week, I had contacted um, 
our architectural friends who had assembled a team of engineers who were down here within uh, probably two weeks after the storm assessing the damage. And I remember very distinctively, it was September 30th, I was standing outside the building on the plaza level talking to uh, the lead architect, and he says, it can be done. It's going to cost you over $200 million, and it's going to take more than two years. And it turns out he was right about each one of those, although we accelerated the time frame to get it reopened in one year. But I right then instinctively felt that this was something we had to do because the Superdome is such a huge part of the economy here. It's such a huge symbol. And uh, in talking with Governor Blanco, uh, probably two weeks after that, uh, on October the 11th, when I first met with her, she recognized that too. And what motivated us every single day was the fear of failing and letting down our entire city because we knew that if the Superdome could not reopen, uh, people would, as you say, not be motivated, not just the people who work here, but the people in the city. This is, I mean, they saw a human tragedy play out on a worldwide scale at the Superdome. It was the poster child for misery and suffering. This was our opportunity to turn it around and show that it could be rebuilt and that we could use it to jumpstart our economy. And I will tell you, every single day that we came to work, there was no problem being motivated. Um, there was no problem being motivated at all. There were times, of course, when you get angry and you get, uh, you know, you get concerned and frustrated about how are we going to make it happen. But um, I would say that uh, we were totally unified behind a common purpose, and that was to reopen this building for the following football season so we could jumpstart the economy, put our people back to work, and give people of New Orleans hope that we were putting a stake in the ground as a city saying New Orleans is going to make it. This building is such a visual image. When you drive by on the interstate, you can't miss it. And to see that 9.6-acre roof ripped apart, peel like an onion, we knew that the minute we turned that roof white again and we put it back together, that people were going to be inspired. So that was our motivation every day. And the fear of failure, uh, the constant reminder that we wanted to recapture what we had lost was what drove us. And I'll, I'll give you one more interesting point about the recovery uh, that, I, that I saw and something that I have learned and uh, really live by today, and that is the power of unity and the common purpose. In our case, you had um, several organizations with very diverse interests. Uh, the NFL had its own self-interest. Uh, the New Orleans Saints had their own self-interest. The state had its own self-interest, Governor Blanco. She wanted jobs. She wanted the economy to be restarted. And of course, we as a company had our own self-interest. We wanted our building back. and We wanted to be able to host events here uh, for the people of New Orleans. But what I saw in that particular situation was everybody put their self-interest aside and they rallied behind this common purpose of let's make it happen. The NFL contributed $15 million. The Saints very quickly decided they were going to come back because they knew the minute that they said yes, they were going to return to New Orleans, that it would create the momentum we needed to get the funding and get the support from the local leaders. Uh, Governor Blanco signed the executive order 
without hesitation, giving us the ability to basically do a design bill project, which at the time was not something that was permitted under state procurement code. So she basically ceded the entire project wow. over to, to, the, to the leadership team here at the Superdome. You guys run it. You guys put it back together. So everybody put aside their own self-interest for the common good. And you know what happened? We were able to reopen successfully on September 26th, uh, September 25th, 2006, with a remarkable uh, Monday night football game, which no one thought would be possible. I remember exactly where I was when that happened. As, as a Saints fan myself growing up, uh, running through those hallways. Um, yeah, it, it reopened and it was just incredible, the work that you and the team did. Um, well, let's talk briefly about the kind of third thing that we referenced at the very beginning, uh, which was the third, I guess, uh, crisis that has somewhat prepared you for what we're facing now with this pandemic, which was uh, the 2008 collapse, financial collapse. Uh, give us a little bit of insight into the lessons that you learned from that crisis. Well, again, very different than Katrina and 9-11, which were uh, catastrophic events. This was a financial event. And uh, there we did see uh, a drop in some of our attendance. Uh, people were, um, they didn't have the money in some cases to buy tickets, buy suites, uh, go to concerts. Uh, so we had to adapt. We had to make decisions within our company to change the way we do business, uh, become more efficient, more lean, uh, in some cases, you know, change our policies. Um, but with the financial crisis, it was more uh, of a corporate issue and less of a, uh, a human issue, if you will, a catastrophic event like Katrina or in this pandemic or um, like 9-11. Uh, but out of that, uh, again, some lessons learned on how to structure your uh, contracts uh, with stakeholders. What do you mean uh, by that? Well, restructuring your deals, um, um, so that you have um, uh, tighter language, default uh, provisions, remedies for defaults, force majeure uh, uh, provisions that permit you to uh, work in good faith if there's a challenge. Uh, so things of that nature. Hmm. Um, requiring uh, performance bonds. These are all best practices, by the way, but they become more commonplace when you have uh, a financial situation or when people may not be able to, uh, uh, to live up to contractual obligations. But uh, we were less impacted by that, I, I would say, than certainly by Katrina, and, in terms of an industry, uh, right. than we were um, uh, with Katrina or with uh, post 9-11. But uh, certainly we were able to reemerge from that. And I think uh, you know, the lessons that we've learned from all three of those have helped us, uh, both individually and as a company. Well, let's let's talk a little bit now, I guess, about how ASM Global, you and your team today, are preparing for Game One. Let's call it, um, or what this uncertain future is going to be. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how you guys are preparing uh, for what's to come. Well, we uh, for the last two or three weeks, we're like everyone else. We've been trying to mitigate the damage <laughs> with. Um, with no cash flow coming into these facilities, it's very important that we try to uh, manage through this crisis. So like everyone else, we're doing that quite carefully. Um, we have executive leadership team calls every day uh, with our CEO, our CFO, and 
uh, our leaders around the world. So I get to, to hear what they have to say about what's going on in their geographic regions in Europe or Asia Pacific. Uh, and we have been talking about uh, what does the new normal look like? I don't think anyone really has uh, all of the answers just yet, but we know that uh, we've got to start preparing in terms of safety uh, standards, cleaning standards, uh, uh, you know, how do we protect our employees? What are the changes we're going to make in terms of uh, personal protection equipment, whether we're going to allow them to wear masks, for example, uh, whether the public will accept that or not. Um, those well, are things- I, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. So if you if you're going to an event, think about this. If you if you're someone that's not in our industry and uh, you're now thinking about buying a ticket to go to a festival or go to a concert, even a football game, what are the expectations that you might have? Uh, I would think one of the expectations you might have is that I want to make sure that whoever's working on the other side of that uh, that turnstile (laughs) is going to be uh, washing their hands. They've got hand sanitizer stations. They've got personal protection, you know, whether it's a, a, a mask, uh, whether they've had temperature checks. I mean, those are all things that would go through your head as a consumer. Uh, so we've got to be able to not only put those best practices in place, we've got to make sure that we articulate them through social media, through our marketing techniques and advertising techniques to the public, just like we did after 9-11. It was a big education process, if you may recall, uh, the first time people went to a football game, particularly women, and they couldn't have a purse over 12 by 12, many of them were sent back to the car. <laughs> it's still an education process in some places. <laughs> so um, I, I suspect we're going to see a lot of that kind of thing. I'm not sure exactly what it is yet, whether it's people bringing their own face mask or whether it's an expectation that our staff will wear a face mask. And then what happens if your, your employee refuses to wear a face mask. What are you going to do? You're going to send them home? So those are all things that you uh, have to examine in this, in this new way of life. Um, then there's always the insurance uh, standards that we have to, to meet. You know, in order for us to, to maintain our insurance policies, there's going to be risk management uh, standards that the insurance companies are mm. going to set for us. Fair. Uh, so we'll be looking at that in terms of liability and assumption of those risks and um, what standards we have to put in place. I know that the, the professional sports leagues are going to be looking at this very closely. Uh, they already are looking at it very closely in terms of the restart. They're probably going to require some base level of cleaning in every one of the facilities. We know that. Uh, the standards will probably be set in uh, accordance with the guidelines of the public health organizations, the CDC and the WHO. Uh, may go beyond that. Uh, so we're, we're starting to examine all of those things, but we believe there is a relaunch um, strategy, if you will, that would involve um, environmental hygiene, that would involve um, food service uh, best practices, hmm. uh, would involve um, personal protection equipment or personal protection, protection gear uh, for our employees and maybe even the fans when they come in. Uh, could be thermal imaging. You know, there's a lot of talk about you know, deploying these thermal imaging machines that take people's temperature as they come in and you would turn somebody away if they have a fever. As, you know? Is that is that like one of these little guns or you're more like a walk-through station? It's like a walk-through station where you actually, you, you, it's almost like walking through a magnetometer. But uh, uh, so all of those things are part of the relaunch of our industry. And I know the leagues, the professional sports leagues are looking at all of those 
different uh, issues and trying to determine what is the best thing to put in place. Uh, but just like after 9-11, I think there is going to be a level of expectation. There's going to be a standard that's set, and building operators will be uh, uh, having to live up to those expectations. Wow. Yeah, there's just so much uncertainty. And I think the best way to do it is kind of what you said is really going through what's going to be in the head of the consumer. What are they going to be? What are their expectations going to be? What are their fears going to be? What are their emotions going to be? And how can we adapt our operations, our business model to make sense for for those consumers? Because ultimately, they pay for everything. And if we don't have fans in our building, we're all out of business here. Well, and I think there's another important factor in this particular case, and that is coming up with some sort of therapeutic drug or potentially a vaccine. Now, the vaccine could be 12 to 16 to 18 months away. Right. Um, our business can't stay shut down for 12 months. We're going <laughs> to have to get back uh, up and running here uh, pretty soon. I don't think the sports leagues are going to want to stay shut down for that period of time. So what does that look like? How do we... Uh, manage to the expectations of the public, do it in a cost-effective way to where the customer journey is not deeply impacted, so deeply impacted that they won't come. You know, if you make it so difficult for people or you you invade their privacy rights, they're not going to come. Uh, so there's a fine balance between um, overreacting uh, and trying to make sure people uh, are safe. But I think the, uh, uh, the one thing we don't know is... Uh, the medical side of this. Uh, experts still do not know exactly how the virus is transferred. Most people believe that it's transferred from coughing or sneezing, and you can't pick it up necessarily from wiping your hand on a surface as, as easily as you can if you breathe it in. Mm. And they know, or at least they don't have any known cases that I've read about, where you can actually ingest it meaning that you'll get it from somebody sneezing in your food if you're worried mm. about a food service worker. So if we can dispel some of the myths and isolate on the real factors here, perhaps that will allow us to hone in on uh, how we protect people when they come in or meet their level of expectation. So the medical side of this is key. It's key for that reason, but it's also key if we have a therapeutic drug, if people know that they can come sit next to you or I for the next four hours at a football game, even if they get sick, they can go home and take medicine or self-quarantine and they're not right. going to infect someone else. That is important. So all of those factors will play into consumer behavior, I think, and it will influence how we react as an industry. Oh, absolutely. I think it was something like I saw a study earlier this week that said, uh, all the days blur together, right? I guess it was last week. Uh, that's something like 71% of fans will be hesitant to return to the arenas without some kind of vaccine. And obviously you've seen more of those stats than I have. Um, so hopefully if we can take care of that medical side of things, it'll help us market, communicate, do things better to get fans in the door. Um, well, as we wrap up here, I mean, what advice would you give to other leaders of sports and entertainment, live event organizations right now uh, to navigate going forward? Well, uh, I'll just tell you quickly some of the, uh, the lessons that I learned coming out of Katrina, and then we'll talk about some of the specific things that, uh, that we like to do as, um, as a company and as I do as a I practice as a leader. Uh, the first thing I'll tell you is uh, what I learned from Katrina is uh, out of disaster sometimes come op comes opportunity. And that may sound very morbid or difficult to comprehend here, but what I saw happen 
with a building that was destroyed and struggling to survive was this was our opportunity to come in and make it a better place. I remember Paul Tagliabue saying to me, you can't just allow people to come in. It can't be the same old saints in the same old Superdome. Now's your chance to do something different and make it a better place. Hmm. So how can that apply to this situation? As we've been talking about here for the last 30 minutes, the world is going to change. Technology is going to improve. So this may be an opportunity to change the way we do business as an industry. And there may be some good opportunities. You never know. So don't look at the glass as being half empty. Look at it as being half full. And I would say that um, there will be opportunities that will come along. And I'm not talking about just business opportunities, but the way to change behavior of customers, maybe a new way of, of, of implementing certain procedures or policies and getting people to adapt or respond in a certain way. So there may be opportunities, even though this is bad now, a year and a half from now, we may look back and say, gee, I had the opportunity to do X as a result of that. So that's the first thing I would say. I mean, even on that note, even on a, a surface level thing from an employee experience perspective, I'm hopeful that a lot of traditional sports and entertainment organizations that have always been nine to five office people will say, hey, you know what? Maybe it's okay to have a flex day once per month where you can work from home because you've got all the tools to do it, right? Well, you're actually seeing this happen right now with the stay-at-home policies. People are doing what? They're riding bikes with their kids. They're eating dinner as a family. They're slowing down their lifestyle. So that's what I mean. Maybe this is an opportunity for us as uh, a culture, or maybe it's an opportunity for us as a business. There will be things that will come along as a result of this that will be opportunities to change behavior in a positive way. So don't look at it as being half empty, look at it as being, from an optimistic point of view, half full. I know that's hard to do right now, but uh, I would just offer that. Secondly, I would uh, offer that uh, leaders should always uh, be prepared uh, for what life is going to throw at you. Now, that's another broad statement, but what I mean by it is you never know when you're going to be thrust into a position of having to make critical decisions or when you may be faced with loss of your job, loss of a loved one. It could be anything tragic in your life. How you react to that defines your character. And it's easy to uh, fall into despair. I went through that after Katrina. I went through the seven stages of grief, you know, denial, despair, and anger, and frustration. Of course, everybody goes through that. Um, but at some point, you have to be able to pick yourself up and accept the challenges that life has thrown at you, because it's never easy. Um, there's always going to be bumps in the road. So be prepared to accept the challenge and don't run away from it as a leader. Um, the third thing I, I learned during Katrina was don't ever underestimate the power of the human spirit. Um, one thing about uh, America and one thing about people in general is they will find a way or make a way. <laughs> you know, if you if you give people uh, any glimmer of hope, uh, they will. The spirit will overcome the power of the human spirit. What do I mean by that? Uh, the ingenuity, the creativity. Uh, you're seeing it right now. What's going? What's playing out with the the medical profession and the search to find a vaccine? I mean, there's a race right now uh, to come up with a solution. The same thing 
will happen at the local level with these facilities, the local level with the sports teams. Um, the human spirit will always prevail. Um, so those are just three sort of life lessons that I learned uh, going through Katrina that I try to live by. But uh, in terms of you know how to lead during a crisis, I would say the first thing you have to do is recognize that you're in a crisis. You know, some people want to whistle past the graveyard. They just want to ignore it and say, ah, it'll work itself out. So I think, you know, you have to uh, first recognize that, uh, that you're in a state of, uh, of crisis and be able to handle that. And secondly, uh, being able to organize yourself in a way uh, to manage that crisis. As a leader, you can't just rely on yourself. You need to organize a team of people or a team of experts, uh, receive that information, and, 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 and be willing to accept their recommendations and not dismiss them. In other words, have full transparency and have people be free to speak because the information coming from the field is so valuable. You know, in a situation like this, you want to hear from the operators, you want to hear from the general managers who are in the trenches so that you can process that information and make those decisions. And you want to be able to do that without repercussions to them. You want honest and, and transparent feedback. Um, communication is key. You know, I mentioned earlier that I'm on daily calls with our leadership team and uh, exchanging information about what's going on in the industry, exchanging ideas, bouncing ideas off each other, uh, uh, creating tasks uh, and timelines that you know, for execution. Uh, those are all very important um, uh, aspects of this. And and finally. I always find that you must be decisive. There are a lot of people who find it painful to make decisions. And, um, you know, you, you've got to be able to make decisions. And it's not, it's not always just the instinctive decisions. I mean, you want to be able to, uh, to make decisions on a well-informed basis, fact-based, not anecdotal. Uh, but you've got to be able to act decisively. The facts may not always become very clear you know, in a time of crisis. And uh, sometimes you've just got to make the decision to move on. You can always adapt and pivot and reorient yourself if you've made the wrong decision. So those are just some things that, uh, that, that I've learned. Well, on that, on that last note, I, this is, this is a quote I've been pondering around leadership, um, this, this past weekend. So, um, there was a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Are you familiar with that name? No. So he was, uh, one of the biggest German evangelical pastors during uh, Nazi Germany. And so he also was orchestrating an assassination attempt on Hitler as a double agent working for uh, the Nazi party. And so he had this just constant battle between being a good Christian and a Christian leader and planning to kill someone, um, but knowing that it was for the better. So he had this quote that was, Faithless vacillation, endless deliberation without action, refusal to take any risks, that's the real danger. We must be clear about what we want, we must ask whether we're up to it, and then we must do it with unshakable confidence. Then and only then can we also bear the consequences. And I think that ties into a lot of what you were what you were Absolutely just saying. Absolutely correct. I agree with that 100%. Uh, if you watch people who are in leadership positions, they're not afraid to make decisions. Uh, certainly there's a fear of failure in everyone's mind that motivates us, right? But you've got to be able to make decisions. And good leaders do not um, worry about 
making bad decisions because they adapt, they pivot, and they reorient. They learn from those mistakes. If you cannot make a decision, you get stranded by paralysis and you will linger and the world will move on and who knows what will happen. Uh, so you've got to be able to make, you got to be decisive. And that's not easy. I mean, some people can do that and some can't. You know, it's it's a difficult um, balancing act. But uh, those are just my thoughts in, in terms of how um, you respond in a time of crisis. Beautiful. Well, Doug, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, where can people reach you or follow along your journey and things that you're doing? Um, because I think a lot of people will be interested as to what you're up to in the following months and years to come. Well, LinkedIn is probably the best method. I'm not a big Facebook person. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm not a big Twitter person. I like to kind of stay under the radar, David, you know, when it comes to uh, uh, putting out a lot of information and not one to pontificate, but uh, certainly LinkedIn is a, is a good vehicle. Sounds good. Well, Doug, one more time, thank you again for being on the show with us. Uh, look forward to our next conversation. My pleasure. Stay well. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, Visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.